I'm really quite a fan of that plinkety plonkety music. Oh, really? At the start, yes. Don't you think? Big fan. I'm going to be listening to that quite a lot. <laughs> I'd like more of it. Uh, anyway, here we are with another Books of the Year podcast. So thank you very much indeed for, uh, for downloading us. Here we go with show three. Uh, lining up with uh, Star of the North by D.B. John, who is David John. That's his real name. That's his first name. Yes. Uh, and Ant Middleton, who's uh, who's written a book called First Man In. So, yes. You know, so that's all about the SBS. The SBS. And the Parachute Regiment. And, and the not a lot he can talk about, the SBS, but it's life lessons for us all. All coming up. That's uh, that's what we're that's what <laughs> we're promising. Anyway, thank you very much, Steve, for getting in touch. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. It's books of the year at yahoo.com. I think it's very straightforward email. It is. It's Only an idiot one. would find it <laughs> difficult to remember. Uh Claire says, thought the first episode was a corker. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Any yeah, chance of a full episode devoted to the best sports biographies of all time? Ooh. Preferably not all footballers. So perhaps some female Olympians too. Yes. Thank you and congratulations on a winning formula. More please. Lots more. Lots more. Lots more. Well, we are going to try. Calm I mean... down, Claire. <laughs> well, we have got some sport books coming up. I mean, it's Michael Calvin, who is one of my favourite sports writers around at the moment. I mean, it is about football, but, you know, there are other great sports books that we can, that we can our feature. Pl- our plan, and this is obviously, this is very new, so we're, roughly we're going to do one fiction, one non-fiction mm. uh, in each episode. But into all that, you know... Sports books, uh, YA books, kids yeah. books, colouring books. I don't know. Just... Colouring books. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, not, not I loved books. how it went from red to blue. Yes, very good. Um, Sue, on this email, you've given me an intriguing view of Barack Obama's White House. So this is from uh, our last show when we spoke to Louis de Bernier about his new novel and Ben Rhodes has written a book, an uh-huh. account of his time at yes. the White House. Uh, yes, an intriguing view of Barack Obama's White House in stark comparison to Trump's time in office. I suppose that's there's, true. There's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Similarly, I look forward to reading Louis de Bernier's new book. During uh, yours and Matt's review, I love the juxtaposition between both fiction and non-fiction and how life often imitates art within the text. You've made the podcast fun to listen to. Absolutely. Well, and we've got, we've on iTunes, we've had loads of five star reviews, which are the only five star reviews that we're interested in. And Leonie Tabor says, I love, 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 love this. If you love reading these in depth, intelligent interviews will unveil your favourite authors with aplomb. Suki Dookie says, I thoroughly enjoyed this podcast. Uh, Well done, Adam (laughs) Simon. Please review one of your own books soon, Simon. Please, (laughs) really. Do Do you know what this reminds you? You remember that, uh, not the nine o'clock news sketch where they did um points of view where it was basically if you'd like to write to the bbc praising us to the skies that's we right. will we will read them all out and that's what this is basically i don't think i'm going to be reviewing any of my books anytime <laughs> no? soon in fact the no? timing of this podcast is rather bad actually because because my book came out a couple of months ago yeah so it's it's hardly I mean, you know, it's still in the in the general uh, feeling, isn't it? Around the uh, every, everyone's talking yeah. about it. Could it be Simon Mayo's book of the year? Yeah, <laughs> well, well, every two weeks we just talk about your book. Special podcast in which you could interview me. <laughs> yes, yeah, I've just been reminded it's coming out in paperback in December. Is it? Oh, so there is the option for us uh, to do uh, this... our guest this week is Simon Mayo. Hey, <laughs> this has been tricky. Anyway, enough of this. Uh, Rachel in Derby uh, on the Louis de Bernier book. 
He has the most beautiful way of bringing a book to life with such vivid colour and heartfelt emotion. Not only does he write with a historical accuracy that far surpasses any school history lesson I've ever had, but he also does so whilst telling the most poignant and heartfelt story of a relationship facing the same turmoil and turbulence that the world around them faces between two world wars. He has an effortless flair of switching between storylines, spanning such contrasting cultures, traditions and backdrops, whether it be Ceylon, India or Kent. Or Kent, yeah. Which keeps the book fresh and exciting. It was only when I got to the end of the book that I realised I understood the true meaning of the title, So Much Life Left Over, something that will resonate in me far long after I... I was exactly the the same. I didn't get the meaning of the book until right at the end. Uh, Jane Towers email, so, so glad you created and I found this podcast. I never knew what a podcast was before. I bought the Louis de Bernier book and I'm loving it. Keep up the good work. Well, shall we keep up the good work right now? Let's do that. Okay, so let's introduce you to our two authors and then uh, also on the uh, emails that you've been sending to books of the year at yahoo.com some of you have been suggesting books that we should look at some uh, and some books that you've particularly enjoyed so we'll get to some of those as well but in the meantime it's author time okay so let's introduce you to our two authors who are with us uh, in the studio first of all the uh, author of star of the north who's db john but we can't call you db can we uh, no you can call me david why, why aren't you david john on the uh, on the cover of the book uh, i wanted to be david john but my publisher told me that uh, my name was completely ungoogleable well, I suppose, yes, it, may, you are, it would sound like a hairdresser. Yeah. Yeah, I, suppose. Yeah. That's right. I think DB pretty cool. Yeah, yeah DB is pretty, DB is cool. Um, so uh, DB John is here, Star of the North, uh, and Ant Middleton, first man in, leading from the front. Hello, Ant, how are you? Very well, thank you. And yourself? Uh, very good. Nice to see you. Uh, thanks very much, Steve, for coming in. Matt uh, Williams here is going to describe yes. and the covers that we're looking at here. Right, both covers. Uh, so let's start with Star of the North. Now, this is mainly uh, red, but with a star that very much the star from the uh, North Korean flag in the middle. And is that a pagoda? Am I right at the bottom? Is it a pagoda? Um, yeah, that's yeah, a, a pagoda in, in black at, at the bottom. And then, of course, the title, Star of the North, picked out in gold and a testimony from Lee Child. If you're doing your thrillers, it's good to get a testimony from Lee Child. It is, I, isn't I'm it? I'm trying to think of another author who might have got a testimony <laughs> okay, from Lee yes. Child. Oh, yes. And the other book is uh, Anne Milton, First Man In, which is dominated by Ant's big face <laughs> all over the front of the cover uh, sniper soldier survivor first man in leading from the front yeah that's a very uh, that's an extreme close-up and isn't it you can't miss it can you it's just like right that's and you're either sick of me or you're going to pick it up because you like me so that was the idea behind it here's the thing matt this is going to only be of interest to a small number of people Go on, because i've heard and interviewed you know a number of times before uh-huh. and every time i hear him interviewed he reminds me of gary mabbott the spurs captain oh gary <laughs> okay. mabbott yes so no. who is uh, who is who, who i Idolised, you know, he's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I grew so. up with Gary Gary Mabbitt as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah so anyway, so anyway, so, I'm, so Mabsy. Just to be absolutely clear, it's not Gary Mabbitt who's written First Man In. <laughs> Ant Middleton. Yeah, it is Ant Middleton, even though they sound the same. So let's start. Let's start with David Johns, DB Johns, um, Star of the North. Uh, give us the the broad sweep of where we are with your story, David. Uh, well, it's a thriller based on real events. Uh, it's about a young American woman, Korean American woman, who's um, kidnapped from a beach just off South Korea, and uh, twelve years later, the CIA recruits her twin sister to find out what really happened, and uh, this leads on a, a spiral of events that causes the sister Jenna on a journey into this dark, secretive, paranoid state. And in the background to the story, there's the growing menace of North Korea's uh, technology, the missile technology that's um, becoming a, an alarming threat. 
On the inside flap, I think it says, North Korea and the USA are on the brink of war. That's right. So I think your publishers, so like nine months ago, would have thought, hey, this is a bit... Uh, bit scarily prescient uh, and then as the Trump negotiations <laughs> yes. rolled in I thought okay well well maybe not anyway we, we can get on to the topicality uh, in just a moment let's establish your credentials first of all as to how you ended up because the, lots of people might be thinking wow North Korea would be a great place to set a thriller shame I've never been that doesn't apply to you so just explain how you were in South Korea then how you went to North Korea and what your background is here uh, well yeah I've always been um, fascinated by tyranny and, and when I saw that news footage in December 2011. I don't know if you remember it. It was just after the Kim, Kim Jong-il's death had been announced. He, he was the father of Kim Jong-un. And there were these extraordinary scenes on the streets of Pyongyang. I don't know if you remember. There were people throwing themselves in the snow and they were appealing to the sky with their hands. And it looked to me as if they were under some kind of spell. Uh, in any other country in the world, they would have been dancing in the streets that this callous tyrant had just died. But I could see, I could tell there was fear behind those tears uh, because everybody there knew, uh, even the children, what kind of punishment awaited anyone whose eyes were dry. And it just made me think, how could any, anyone there live any kind of independent life or personal life? I, that was when I decided to visit. And four months later, I joined a small tour group uh, that toured the whole country of North Korea. It is possible to visit with a small uh, group. It's very tightly controlled. Uh, we weren't really allowed to speak to any ordinary people without the minders standing there listening. And, of course, we were shown only those things the regime wanted us to see, you know, all these monuments to socialism and so on. And, and Pyongyang, the, the capital, it is very impressive. It feels a bit like a, a tour on a gigantic film set with the, with the population behaving like extras. But, of course, behind it was possible to peep behind the set. Um, they couldn't hold, hide the whole reality from us. And uh, I, I could see with my own eyes, you know, there were kids living on the streets who were obviously homeless. They were not in school. There were ruined factories. There were uh, women washing clothes in a dirty river. The reality was there. They couldn't completely hide it behind the propaganda. Um, I was there for two weeks. And then after that, I lived in South Korea in Seoul for four months, where I started writing the plot, coming up with the plot. Um, the plot was the easy part, in a way. Uh, the characters were much more difficult. It took me much longer to get to know them and um, to make them believable. Yes. Uh, can we just start with... Um what happens in the in the opening few chapters, right? So uh, we we start in 1998. That's right. Uh, and this astonishing. I mean, if I'm saying too much, then just say we'll I'll rephrase it. But we got two guys on. We got a man and a woman on a beach, and they're kidnapped from out of a submarine, uh, and they disappear, and they're taken from the south to the north. So this is instantly we are thinking. Really, this is this is sounds preposterous. You know, you don't kidnap people from a submarine, but here you're touching on okay, stuff that that really happened. Just to explain what the background is to to the kidnapping sort of uh, official policy of the North. Well, so much about North Korea is stranger than fiction, and I was worried I'd be stretching the reader's imagination, which is why I included a note at the mm. back to explain which parts draw from fact. But yes, the North Korean state actively abducted random civilians from beaches in Japan and South Korea for about 20 years. 
Um, they probably abducted many hundreds of, of people and spirited them back to North Korea. And why they did that, what the real reason behind this policy was, no one, is, no one has ever fully explained it. Some of them were put to work teaching trainee spies local customs and slang and in Japan and so on. But the majority of them had no use to North Korea. They were segregated in secret compounds for decades. They were encouraged to marry. Uh, they had children who grew up as loyal North Koreans. Um, it's, um, it, 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 it's a mystery, and it, it was a good, inciting mm. incident with which to start the story. Sure. So, so tell us more about... Su- so Soo-min and Jenna are the, are the twins at the heart of the story. Just ex- tell us more about them and, and where we find them in the story. Well, Suman's just an 18-year-old girl right at the beginning um, of the story. Boy meets girl on a beach, and, and then they disappear without trace. Um, she has a twin sister, Jenna, who's a young Korean-American academic in Georgetown uh, University in Washington, D.C. And uh, Jenna lives most of her life under the shadow of this family tragedy. Her, her twin vanished without trace, and for years she believed she drowned until a mysterious encounter with the CIA uh, starts her thinking that the truth is more complicated, uh, that she could have been abducted. Okay, and you've and they are uh, part Korean, part African American. That's right. Yeah, because um, because I just wanted to make that uh, um, an in- an interesting facet of the story. Being being part African American also makes Jenna an outsider to other Koreans, and all three of my main characters are outsiders in a way. They don't completely fit in. Um, I find outsiders and misfits, those are the kind of characters I'm attracted to writing about. Um, They often draw on an inner strength they don't realise they had. Um, And um, I suppose it's drawing from my own background as well uh, as from my own experience growing up. And Middleton is nodding, actually, when you were talking about outsiders having interesting stories. Oh, I was very struck by that in in Ant's book, actually, about how um, early years form character. I mean, that, that... that was really strongly impressed on me. Early adversity. Yeah. Mm. But you never joined Nine Para. Good job you didn't. So, uh, Matt, uh, let's talk about Star of the North. Yes. John. No, I, I raced through this. Goodness me. Um, that opening where you're having people being abducted by a submarine, you, straight away you read that and you think, really? Astonishing. And there are so many points in this book where it felt like sort of this dystopian 1984 kind of book where you're thinking, right, OK, I've, I've sort of seen this before. And then and then at the back of your mind, you go, actually, a lot of this is, is based on reality. In fact, 90% of it based on reality actually happening. Um, there were certain parts of it that, that obviously rang true that I'd, I thought, right, that makes sense. Um, I think uh, guilt by association, so in other words, a crime, and I'm using crime in the loosest possible sense, being committed by one member of the family means the entire family could end up uh, in, in the gulag. But there's, there is one programme I want to talk to you about, which is the seed-burring programme, which, again, when you mention it in the book, you think that this, this feels like a Bond movie, but it, it, it is actually true. Uh, that's right. Well, once again, stranger than fiction, North Korea. But North Korea had a, a policy of sending attractive female agents abroad to become pregnant by men of other races, men with black, brown or white skin. And the idea was to raise these babies in Pyongyang and train them as spies. And they would look foreign, but be thoroughly indoctrinated North Koreans. 
unbelievable. And, and you know this as well. It's not as if this is just conjecture or this is coming from, say, defectors. The, the, the government has admitted to this because it, it was trying to sort of curry favour with other, other governments by saying, we're really sorry we did this, by the way, to which the response from many was, what? What have you been doing? Um, yes, that's right. They, um, <laughs> they, they have kind of admitted to it. Um, they have also targeted um, important Westerners uh, with these attractive female agents, and then you blackmail them by saying you have a baby in Pyongyang. That has also happened. David, so, it's a quick one, if yeah, I can jump in. When you first went out there to North Korea, did you go out there with the inspiration to want to start to write a book, or was it once you, you were out there and you learned what was going on and you took in what was actually happening out there, was that the inspiration for the book, or did you have that idea in your head before you left? Uh, no, I had, the, I had the idea in my head. I always knew I wanted to write a, bu- a book about um, North Korea. I'm fascinated by power, the way power is abused and what power does to a mind. So I knew I wanted to write a book oh, God, about yeah. North Korea when I went there. But it, I had to see it for myself. I couldn't write about it without seeing it for myself. And um, I witnessed the excessive um, misuse of power, th- this extreme, ridiculous leader cult that everyone has to uh, submit to. And and that's one of the striking uh, sections in the book, I think, David, where you get, and Matt's mentioned 1984, but it's 1984 and it's now, and it's that kind of paranoia in the, when you get down to the small family level as to what you can do and what you can do and what you can't do and you can't say that and you, if you see this is how you're going to... I mean, it's astonishing to think that this is, this is now, this isn't the 1930s or a couple of hundred years ago, this is happening right now. That's right. I mean, p- people out there probably watching, enjoying The Handmaid's Tale on TV. Uh, it's a dystopia that has a kind of biological element. Well, there's actually a real one there today. You know, there is a real 1984 there. It exists today. And these elements that make this nightmare state, like Camp 22 and human experimentation, I didn't make it up. It's actually happening. Uh, Matt? Yeah, well, here's, here's the other thing that, that springs out of this book. is, And I, I'm particularly interested in, in your take on this because of your experience in visiting that country and, and your, your knowledge of that area. I was struck by the end that perhaps sanctions isn't the way to go, that the only way, the only thing that sanctions are achieving in, in North Korea is making the people uh, poorer and actually building the wall even higher and, and preventing this, this country turning, turning away from tyranny. Would I be right in thinking that this is your view, that, that sanctions just aren't working, that there is another way um, of turning this round? Sanctions definitely don't work. They're playing right into uh, the tyrant's hands. Um, you must remember, this is a regime that's maintained absolute and lethal control for nearly 70 years now by keeping people people poor, hungry and as ignorant as possible about the outside world. What do you think would happen if this country suddenly started becoming prosperous and wealthy with rising expectations? I think it would be a major danger to that regime. It would sweep it away very quickly. It wouldn't be long before people started thinking, why can't we have the same political liberties enjoyed by our fellow Koreans just across the border in the South? It, it's fascinating because we we so rarely meet someone or get a chance to speak to someone who has actually been to a country which is finds itself at the heart of the news, you know. So when you're watching Trump meeting uh, the North Korean leader, do you think, okay, this could work? Or I know we're straying off topic a little bit from your <laughs> from your story, but do you you know what's your instinctive reaction? Do you think yes that you know they they this is a meeting of minds maybe? Oh, it was a fantastic scene. It was the Bond villain meeting the Gotham City villain. <laughs> um, it, I, I couldn't believe it had happened, um, but uh, I. 
do not uh, feel optimistic about it at all. I don't think anyone should get their hopes up. Um, those weapons are central to Kim's grip on power, and they're central to his credibility with the army, which is his main pillar of support. Um, I, I think he will string this out as long as he can and, and get a, a slight easing of sanctions, but I think he's probably playing Trump for a fool. And you're a well-traveled man. Do you uh, read books like this? Oh, I'm actually just rolling it back just a bit. Uh, listening to a lot of the Five Lives coverage at the World Cup has been full of people saying, oh, I've come to a country, I thought it was going to be like this, and actually it's turned out to be completely different. And we hear one thing about the government, then we hear a different thing when we meet the actual people, sure. when we meet the locals. Was that the way, as you, as you went around the world, is that the way it's, it seem, seems to you that actually nothing beats actually getting to the country itself? I think, like David said, it's about getting your hands dirty and getting down, not only into the country, but getting out of the touristic areas, you know, find, putting yourself in a bit of a pickle, really, actually getting out there, finding out what's going on and really engulfing yourself within that culture and within that country's sort of uh, needs. And uh, so I've always done that. Everywhere I've went, it's always been political. It's always, you know, we've people say you've traveled around the world I say yeah I've, I've cleaned it up you know I've been traveling around cleaning it up most of the time but you get to learn you know you get to learn what's working what's not working and uh, ultimately you you do politics plays a massive part without you even realizing it when you're going in for that sort of particular reason like David did into into North Korea so it definitely you have to get out there and it's like anything else it's like learning a language or whatever it may be you go out to the country within six months you engulf yourself with it you know you learn a language it's exactly the same if you want to learn about the politics or how the country runs get out there get your hands dirty and get in get in the mix of it and that's it I'm, I'm a firm believer in that's that that's what you have to do. I realise, actually, I made certain assumptions in that question. If the special boat service may already have been in North Korea and you wouldn't be able to tell me about it. Correct. <laughs> OK, <laughs> so that's where that went. <laughs> yes. yeah. As I just firmly zip my mouth up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, would be, that would be particularly uh, intriguing. So, David, when, when the idea of a story came to... Was the thriller the obvious way to go about it? I mean, you could have written... A romance. You could have written uh, another kind of drama, more epic drama, but you you opted for the thriller. Do you feel that was the that was the right decision? Was that always what you were planning to do? Well, yes. I mean, come on. I wanted to keep you up all night turning the pages, yeah. but. Um, it, I hope it's a little bit more than just a thriller because I've read so many thrillers that have got um, a, a central protagonist straight out of um, off, off the casting shelf, you know, two-dimensional. I wanted to create characters that were believable and fully formed, that so much so that you'd care about them, that, yeah. you, that you'd care what happened to them in the end. What, 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 I, what I found it, it, it became in my head was... All, because the only dystopian thrillers that are being written at the moment are in YA fiction, right, in young adult fiction. That's where they look at the Hunger Games, all yeah. that kind, that is where dystopian fiction is happening. And when you, when we are in North Korea and we're dealing with the abductions program and the seed bearing program and all, and the gulags, you think this is the nightmare scenario, which we now only get in YA. It, it's, it's Hunger Games territory. And yet actually we're, you've moved. So it, it felt like it, like a thriller with YA overtones, which which I thought gave it extra energy. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yes, I mean, I, uh, uh, I'm i very inspired by the novels of uh, Robert Harris. He, he takes um, real historical events that everyone knows about and he spins a story around them. He finds a, a little shadow in which to create a story. And um, 
it was uh, the death of Kim Jong Il. I wanted. I started with. I thought of that, and I thought I worked backwards, creating a story backwards, drawing on real dystopia um, because I didn't have to make any of this up. I no. Uh, so, uh, Star of the North is, uh, is by D.B. John. We'll talk more with David uh, in just a moment. We speak to Ant Middleton next. So, this is Simon Mayer's Books of the Year. And uh, in our latest episode, we are talking to Ant Middleton, first man in. Talk to Ant in just a moment. Star of the North by D.B. John. Uh, we've told you over previous weeks that we've done a deal with uh, audible.co.uk. And if you sign up, you, you basically get a free book. You can cancel at any time. So you can go for Star of the North, which has been read by Linda Park. Just explain who Linda is. Uh, she's a Korean-American actress. Uh, she appeared in Star Trek, I believe. Uh, she, wow. You, were you tempted to do it yourself? <laughs> no, I wasn't. No. Uh, okay. no. <laughs> and Anne's book, First Man In, is also there. So you can get both of these books on Audible. You, do you read yours or do you get a Star Trek actor to do <laughs> yours? No, I read mine. Good man. <laughs> so First Man In narrated. Days, so be grateful. <laughs> First Man In narrated by Gary Mabbott. That's... <laughs> <laughs> So basically, uh, you sign up uh, and it's audible.co.uk slash books of the year. You get a free book, uh, which you can keep whether you continue with the contract or not. You can cancel it uh, at any time. Uh, so Star of the North, read by Linda Park and First Man In, is read and written by Ant Middleton. So just explain, so it says under First Man In, it says leading from the front. Explain what you're trying to do with this, because it's part memoir and part kind of how-to and motivational book. Yeah, it's a part um, autobiography and part self-help book. And I wanted to break away from the whole, this is an autobiography of a military man, that gun-ho sort of thing. There's plenty of books out there. And I believe I've got such a unique story from when my father passed away when I was five years old to the different careers that I've had um, and the way that I've dealt with them and also the highs and lows of, of discovering, you know, trying to find out what happened to my father and a sort of jumping ship where I was completely isolated. I completely isolated myself from my family and from, from everyone around me because I wanted to do everything by myself. I wanted to be self-sufficient. I didn't want to have, I didn't want to have to rely on anybody. So as you can imagine, I learned the hard way. So from myself growing up all the way through to me getting into the, um, into the media, um, I've learned a lot of lessons. Um, been to a lot of negative places I've been to a lot of dark places but not only once twice three you know I'm talking five six seven times so um and it's relatable to people out there people can relate to it because actually they're either there now they've been there before they might find themselves in two three years time so I thought it's very important to give them an antidote as well so you may well have seen Ant on Channel 4's SAS Who Dares Wins uh the bare bones of it uh and thir 13 years in the military correct uh, you did special boat service, which I mentioned, Royal Marines, and nine parachute squadron. squadron. So, Royal Engineers, yeah. Royal Engineers. Mm -hmm. So in, in the book, that's, that's a big deal. But just explain the significance of all, the fact that you were SBS, Royal Marines, and nine parachute squadron, Royal Engineers, mm -hmm. is a big deal. Mm -hmm. But for those outside of the military, less so. Just explain why it's significant. To have all that on your CV? Well, I left France. I lived in France from the age of nine to the age of 16 when I joined the military and I joined the army. And it, the reason why I joined the army was because, you know, sort of growing up in a lie, my, my father sort of was taken out of our lives from a very young age and my stepfather came in weeks later. Um, so as the years were going on, I found out I was living in a lie and my way of escaping it was moving country. So I was from France, I thought, right, 
I'm going to move back to the UK. How can I do that? How can I get a roof over my head, feed myself, earn some money and also challenge myself? I wanted to be self-sufficient. I thought, brilliant, let's join the army. And uh, so that was an escape, really, to be by myself and to really separate myself from the family. But also what was such a shock to me was the culture difference such a culture difference you know back in when I was 14 and 15 I was sitting in a French cafe drinking coffee and you know reading books and talking to my pals um, and then moving over and joining the military at the age of 16 it was such an alpha male sort of difference that you know I didn't know how to deal with it I didn't know how to cope with it so the reason why the military is such an important part of my life is because it it's, it moulded me into such a positive person, but also took me down a route where of self destruction because I couldn't comprehend it, I couldn't understand it. I was brought up in this way, in a lie in France, and all of a sudden I'm, I've dropped myself into into something that it took me really years to process, to get through, and also to understand how to get by, how to survive in the UK. You, you, and you say in the book, I let the worst of the army mm. get let get the better of me. Mm -hmm. So what happened? When I joined uh, the Royal Engineers, I passed out of training and I joined 9 Parachute Squadron Royal Engineers, which is the airborne side. So you go through P Company and you get your maroon beret and your parachute wings. You become a, a para of the army, which is very well respected. And again, the challenge was there. And back in the day, in, from 97 till 2002, there was nothing going on. So the anger, the aggression, the, uh, you know, it was all turned towards So there's nothing other. going on around the world, you mean? Yes, Beauty. exactly, yeah. You know, there's Northern Ireland, but that was calming down. You know, it's very much a peacekeeping tour. You had, you know, Kosovo and Macedonia. Again, your peacekeeping tours, nothing like your Iraqs and Afghanistan. So, you know, all that sort of pent-up aggression that we've sort of been trained to do, we, we turn on each other. And it's very much a drinking, and people will who have been through that era will agree with me. It's very much a drinking and pub soldier culture. You know, you go down the pub and before you know it, you'd be beating 10 barrels of, uh, of crap out of each other. And that was the way that you dealt with it. That's the way you got your aggression out. But nowadays, soldiers are much more relaxed and calm and because, you know, they've been to Iraq, they've been to Africa, they've been to proper war zones where all this can be vented and actually what they've trained so hard for all their career, they're putting into action. You know, so they're, they're being able to vent. So it was just unfortunate that I went through a period and that um, I didn't enjoy. Again, it was a very personal thing. Some people love that, and that's what makes the army the army. But after a year, a year of falling into that, you know, drinking culture and fighting culture, I sort of looked up to, you know, my seniors who were 35, 40 when I was 18, 19, 20, and I'm thinking, do I really want to end up like like these guys? Well, that that's what's striking about this book because, as you, I think you've already said that you know there are so many of these sort of autobiographies out where obviously whoever's writing an autobiography, normally the idea is you want to you want yourself to come across in the most yes. positive light <laughs> possible because you're the one writing the book. But reading yours, I was what what jumped out at me was how candid you were prepared to be about what you were like I, I remember reading your book and my wife came in and asked me about how the book was going and I thought and I said to her I really don't like this bloke mm. if he was on a bus with me I would get off mm. if he was coming down the road towards me I'd cross the road if he was in a pub with me as you've already <laughs> said I would leave the pub and and that is it's your decision to be as honest as that that is as that makes this book stand out, and I wonder whether there was a there was a part of you that was thinking, 
when you were, you must have found it really difficult to write yeah. and certainly the bits with the you, you've already talked about the drinking culture but yeah. i do want you to expand on that because it's really really unpleasant what what is yeah. going on yes yeah, when i when i started uh sort of doing the book i was, I was sat there cringing you know, when you just think, what's that me? But that's who I am today. You know, I've flipped myself into such a positive person and into, into such a positive forward thinker um, that I'm not scared to strip myself down and go, do you know what? This is me. And I do that in my work now. I do that at home. And, you know, I think a lot of people, before they leave the house, they naturally put this body armour on because they're hiding behind their insecurities. They're hiding behind their negativity. They're hiding behind their weaknesses where, you know, so... They're putting all this body armour on and it, some of them can't even fit out the door. So that's where anxiety and depression comes in because they just turn around and go, right, I'm going to go back and sit on the couch all day. But once you're open and honest with yourself, then it makes you sort of limitless. It makes you bulletproof because someone could say to me, and you were blah, blah. Yeah, I was back then. <laughs> I know the moment you can, you can admit that and you, you process it and you can move forward. And I thought it's very, very important because there's so many people out there that pretend to be someone else that have insecurities, that have weaknesses, and it, it, it eats them up and destroys them. And I wanted them to know that, listen, I'm no different. You know, I've, like I said, multiple times, I have these weaknesses. I have these insecurities. I've failed so many times. But you can. It's ultimately down to you as an individual to get out of it. If you put yourself in that situation, you need to be, you know, you need to have that in, that certain thing inside you which we all possess to get yourself out of it but where, where does that positivity come from you know given all that bad stuff which you know and anyone really this will realize will come out thinking wow nine para what a hideous place to be yeah uh, and you are in some very bad places but how come you end up as this positive person i've just had quite a few messages from lads from nine parish squad from my ear and they're like and that book was you know your book's spot on um and i'm glad i'm reaching out to those people as well and they were like oh well, you know we all fell into it so they were all um, hating it, were they? Uh, no, but they were they were loving it. But when they look back and they're honest about mm. it, they were like, "Yeah, it was exactly like that." But you know, it, it depends on your mindset on how you how you judge it or how you think about it. But it's because I've had so many negatives in my life that I've had whether it's a ne- whether I've dealt with a negative person or whether I've dealt with a negative situation. Can, we, can you sorry to pause you? Can you give mm. me an example of negative person and negative situation? Yeah, okay. So a negative person is someone that. When I was when I first passed nine parachute squadron, um, and I went out for my first troop run, um, obviously wanted to impress. So I was at the front with with the PCI running along, and then one of the older boys from the back who'd been in for a few years came up as I was running along and literally cry kicked me into a ditch. Just went and boom. And as the whole group the whole group saw, but they just left it because they knew that, that this was the culture. And he grabbed me in the ditch and he just said to me, he said, don't embarrass the rest of us by being at the front. You're a sprog, which means, you know, you're, you're a new boy. Get to the back. And it's just like, right, how do I, how do I come out of this? Do I, you know, but I let that get the better of me because I turned that, that negative person, his negativity rubbed off on me because it, it just turned into anger. Mm. And so I'd go out that night and, punch someone's head in because or get, drink like a madman because actually my way of proving to them that I was you know okay I wasn't trying to show off was 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 by dealing thinking in a negative mindset with dealing with a negative person and when you deal with whether that's a situation or a person whether you deal if you deal negativity with negativity you're going to go one way and that's down that's, that's, that's a given fact and I've learned 
And I've done that so many times throughout my career. And again, a negative situation with my father passing away. You know, I wanted to find out the truth. You know, I wanted to find out what was going on. I wanted to find out, you know, why we weren't allowed to all these. And I'd think to myself, well, if you don't tell me, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pin you up against that wall and I'm going to lever you and I'm going to get the answer out of you. But again, you just end up, all you end up doing is probably end up in prison, end up assaulting someone. It's just a negative on a negative again. So I've learned so much that so through these situations and people that if you deal with a neg- negative with a negative, you're going to go one way. So I just flipped it. Okay. I, something clicked in my head one day and I started flipping it. And then I started rising. I started going on the up and up and up and up. And I am here. I'm where I am today. But we should say right now, because mm-hmm. you start the book with it, mm-hmm. about people asking you what you call the question, capital T, capital Q, yeah. which is about killing people. Yeah, all the time. Uh, and, uh, and you make it very clear that you enjoyed it. Yeah, I didn't uh, make and it very clear that I enjoyed it. I, what I made very clear was that I loved my job. I loved doing my job, and my job was. But it to, didn't mess your didn't mess with your head the way it messed with some of your colleagues' heads after you had killed someone. Yeah, not at all. Um, it was a job to me, and uh, I'd done my job to the best of my ability and to to the highest standards. Um, it was never personal, you know. It's a case of right. I go into this room. I don't look look them in the eye and go right. You know, I'm getting joy out of this. I'm like right. Is there an imminent threat to my life or my pal's life? Yes, there is. Right. Okay. Job done. On to the next room. Like, what do I need to do? Okay, the mission is we need to capture this Taliban commander who's inside the building. Obviously, being a Taliban commander, you're, you're very heavily protected. And, um, you know, we need to do what, we, what needs to be done to, to extract this person and get information out of him. And sometimes, not all the time, it, it means, uh, you know, either putting yourself in the firing line or, or kill or be killed situation, basically. Um, so I enjoyed my job. I loved my job. I loved the buzz of going into combat. I loved the buzz of, of looking after my pals. And, uh, you know, I loved the, the buzz of getting the job done. Do you like it too much? I went through a stage where I did. It, you know, you it's very much like a... The only way I can describe it is like a dog uh, on a bloodlust. You know, they say once a dog bite once, you know, it's very hard to Mm. control. And again, being brutally honest, that's what I felt, you know, maybe during my my second sort of beginning of third tour of Afghanistan. I had to be very, I had to really, you know, look at myself and rein myself in because I didn't want to be that bully with a weapon. I've never been a bully with a weapon, but I didn't want, want to turn in. I could see that... I could very much deviate off that path and turn into that person. There, there is another uh, element of the book that, that that comes across as you're reading it. A lot of it is about your the, the selection process to be able to get into Nine Para, to be able to get in the SBS mm. uh, and and the Marines. Um, and I want to talk about something you mention uh, in that process where you, I think, absolutely nail what those. Uh, particular regiments are looking for. Now, if you were to ask sort of people in the street what they're looking for, my answer would oh, oh, right, it's going to be a physical thing or it's going to be a mental thing. It's something to do with that. And you said something really interesting that I, uh, I want you to talk about. You said that they are looking for people who can just about skirt that line, who can just sail that close to the wind, where if they tipped over one way, they would be... It would, it's almost psychopathic tendencies. They would end up in jail. But they can just pull it back. That inch between someone who it could be serving life versus someone who is a, an elite soldier. 
that's exactly that. When they pass us, you know, there's very few of us that that get selected. There's 202 that passed that that attended my course, and 14 of us passed. And they are almost putting their fingers crossed behind their back and going, right. I'm hoping this this pays off, you know. I'm mm. hoping this person sticks it, which you know, again, it, we're humans, we, we don't. And um, it is, it's that line, and it's like oh, the only way I can describe it is like walking on a tightrope. Okay, and that's how that's how fragile it is. And sometimes, you know, we're human. Sometimes we fall off of it. Okay, but then we have to get back on that rope, you know. But you can't afford to fall off of it more than once because the moment you do that then even even once you can't really if we were talking in terms before you acknowledge what's going on you know you really must know that whoa this this line is being bent so far that it's going to snap or or you know so you really have to but that's why you've got the people around you that's why you've got like-minded people not not physically because we're all sort of different physicals as psychologically now that's why we get trained. That's why we get put through certain psychological tests on selection, which are grueling, absolutely grueling. You know, um, because of that very reason, so we can teeter on that edge. Has that has that changed? Has that selection process changed since you were since you were going through? No, it hasn't changed. I don't think the selection process has changed uh, since since it started. And um, there's a few minor details that have changed to fit a certain uh, war zone that we operate in. But apart from the selection, no, it's it's a brutal, um, a brutal process. Um, and it's, having sort of stepped out of it and looking back into it, I think to myself, wow, I've I done that. You know, it's, but when you're engulfed with it, when that's your life and that's your, you know, that's that's your your every existence, then it's it's, it's a completely normal way of life. But now I know that it's not normal. Uh, we were speaking to David John, DB John, star of the North. Is his book uh, earlier in the podcast? David, do you uh, you've you've seen Anne's book? What did you make of it? Uh, I was hugely impressed by it. I, I was just thinking now, uh, given what you were just saying about um, you um, you skirting this line, um, you did actually end up in prison. Um, so it, it it's almost like you um, you toppled off you well, toppled off that tightrope, right? And, and you know, if, if that had happened to me, it would have been uh, the end, you know. As uh, but you started turning it around immediately, mm. you know, turning yourself into this model prisoner. It's almost mm. as if you <laughs> you knew you knew what to do to get out of this worst, this terrible spot. Well, look at that. That you know, I found myself in a problem, right? And I look at problems in, as negatives, and I, you have to to. to, to to solve a problem, you have to find a solution, right? Mm. So again, being in that, ne- I was in a negative situation. I was in prison, you know. I couldn't. There's only one way I could go, and that was in my head because of my positivity. That was up, you know. I was, I was almost relieved on because of the build-up was so intense. To you know, are you going to go to prison? What's going? I was almost relieved because I could, I could. That is the problem being handed to me was prison. Right now, I've, I can. I'm the only one that can find a solution for that. But again, if I adopt an, an, uh, a negative mindset in a negative situation, i.e. in prison, then again, you're going to go one way. You're going to end up fighting, giving yourself more time. You're going to end up depressed. You're going to end up, you know, so I took it as a challenge. Well, I've got a problem. I need to challenge this problem to, to find a solution. Uh, the, the book has uh, lessons, but well, that's how the chapter headings are written. Yeah. Don't let anyone define who you are. Make your enemy your energy. Leaders stand apart from the crowds. Yeah. You're suggesting that there are lessons for life from that we can learn from your life in the military. Is that is that your pitch to us? 
Yes, I didn't think it was scalable. When I first left, I thought, you know, no one's going to ever experience what I've experienced, you know, sort of the life or death problems. But the more that I was talking to people and the more that I've become a role model for youngsters and I've inspired the, the elder or whatever it may be, they've started coming to me um, with their problems. And I have been sort of scaling it to to their to their to their problems and they've come back and that's absolutely gobsmacked and humbling for me you know I've, I've changed their lives I've changed the way they think I, you know a couple of months ago I had a woman I didn't even know on the tube started she must have been about 60 65 she started crying on my shoulder and I just and I thought oh she may might be in trouble she went your aunt aren't you I was like yeah she went, I just want to let you know you've changed my mindset and even at my age, it's never too late to keep doing what you're doing. And then I get 12, 13-year-olds that you know, say, and, you know, I want to join the military when I'm 16. I'm like, whoa, listen, get some qualifications under your belt first. Do your A-levels. When you're 18, 19, you still want to do that. You know? So it's, it's, it's gone into a massive responsibility now. So I feel like I have a sense of responsibility to the public. And I've been there, done it done it the hard way and that's why the lessons are in there because I ultimately I want to give something back uh, is it frustrating not being able to put some of your cooler stories into <laughs> into it right. uh, but do you know what it's one of those when I it's quite funny because some of my critics are like oh Ant's a fantasist and uh, and to me again turning my enemies into into energy I'm like wow if people think that that's fantasy that's that's brilliant because if I put that's half of my life, even a quarter of my life. If I was to put everything in there, then you'd definitely think... Have you, had to take, have you take some stuff out? <laughs> yes, yeah, we, yeah, we've had to take quite, quite who, a lot who, out. And who said what had to come out? Uh, the powers to be in London uh, from... From, from I'm, I'm, Yeah, I'm signed to uh, a Sikh Act for life. So everything has to be passed through uh, So your time in North in Korea, that's, that's <laughs> gone. That's my next book. That's my next book. Well, does that ever see the light of day? Um, no, it, no, it won't ever see the light of day, unfortunately. No, no, I say unfortunately. Um, it's, you know, it's for national security and for the security of the lads. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm completely uh, OK with it. And, uh, but I do try and push my luck, and like we all do. And they say, yes, you can do this, Ant, but no, you, you can't do that. I just want to read one thing to you guys just to get just to get your reaction so one of the things that we want to do on this podcast is to encourage young people to to write and or or old people frankly anyone you know if you've got a publishing deal credit fantastic that's that's a lovely place to be but a lot of people uh want to write and be creative and they don't have access to a publisher so one of the things that we're trying to do is to just say, okay, send us stuff, you know, send us the email. Matt, do you remember what the email address is? Yes, it's booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Do you, really, do you not remember? Because we did pick that one because it's so easy to remember. Yeah, so that's, that's right. that's I haven't even got that written it? down. <laughs> Books of the year at <laughs> yahoo.com. There you okay. go. So that's how you get in touch with us. And uh, tell us anything. Uh, you can talk about the books that we've read uh, and anything that you'd like us to read. Also, if you see some fantastic writing, uh, then let us know about it. Anyway, I just thought I'd read you this because uh, it, I thought it was pretty remarkable. So this comes from... There's a competition called Wicked Young Writer Awards. And Alana Edward, who is uh, in the 8- to 10-year-old category... So just so we pitch it. So I don't know what you were like when you were 8, to, eight, to, eight and 10. I was eh? out in the woods uh, playing bow and arrows and... David, what dens. were you doing? Uh, I was writing stories that no one ever... No, no one was ever shown. <laughs> well, maybe it's time to get them out. What were you doing, Matt, at the age Playing of Playing Manic Minor. 
which I, I'm going to say is of the three of those, I come out the worst. <laughs> OK, anyway, so I'm just going to... So this is... Uh, we, uh, also, as we've said before, we don't want... Don't send us, like, reams of paper. Don't send us unpublished books. But if there's something that's, you know, minute and a half, two minutes worth, a couple of paragraphs, uh, then I think uh, I think we'd be interested and maybe we could uh, use it uh, on the podcast. So this is in the eight to ten-year-old category, Alana Edward. And it's like, it's sort of a poem. It's like a prose poem. So here we go. I would, Alana, I, I hope you get to hear this and I will do it. I'll try and do it justice. For most of my life, I truly believed I was here to help somebody else. But now it's so clear it was an excuse to avoid living life for myself, to bear with the tragedies, to survive the hardest times, to face those moments filled with pain, and I still manage to be kind. But there's something I've learnt through the wisdom of age, a truth about all of our lives, and that is no matter what path we take, in the end, we all just want to survive. To learn while still a child what this life is meant to be, to know it goes beyond myself, it's so much more than me. To fight for those who can't, to always share my light with those who wander in the dark, to love with all my might, to try to understand the ones that no one cares to know and make them feel some value when the world has let them go. To live a life of decency, to share my heart and soul, to always say I'm sorry when I've harmed both friend and foe. To be an anchor, strong and true, that person loyal to the end. To be a constant source of hope to my family and friends. To me, that's what this life should be. To me, that's what it's for. To make what God has given me and make it so much more. Wow. So I thought, well, if you, if Alana Edward, if you can write like that um, when you're eight, nine or ten... Actually, I thought that actually some of that fits in with quite a lot of the life lessons that you were telling us about. She's read your book. Definitely, yes. Absolutely brilliant. And uh, to have that mindset and uh, to think in that manner <clears throat> at, at her age is absolutely amazing. <laughs> Listen, you've got to write a book. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about that, David? Oh, I think she's a future poet laureate. Mm. It was pretty impressive, Matt, wasn't it? I, uh, yeah, I read that yesterday. I was almost in tears. It's, yeah. it's, it's such, a, such insight at such a young age. It's Unbelievable. Uh, and it's been good having you on the podcast. Thank you very Thank much you indeed. For me. Sniper, soldier, survivor, and Middleton, first man in, leading from the front. Star of the North is by DB John. David, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. Very nice to have you have you in. And if you want to have these stories read to you, Star of the North by Linda Park, first man in, read by uh, Ant. If you go to audible.co.uk slash books of the year, uh, you can get one of those for free. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, James. Thank you. In the next show, uh, we will be talking to... I've already read this book. Uh, it's called Treachery of Spies by Amanda Scott. Long time ago, when I was at Five Live, when we did uh, a couple of books every Thursday, Amanda had written a whole series of books about ancient Rome and about Bodicea. Okay. Or Boudicca, as it is. Uh-huh. Uh, and and so she she's written fantastic historical fiction, but it's always been from a long, long, long time ago. Treachery of Spies is sort of contemporary France and the Second World War. It's amazing. Yes, yes it's very it good. It is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, far more traditionally historical fiction, The King's Witch by Tracy Borman. Mandra and Tracy are going to be in on uh, the next podcast that we do. Also coming in uh, shortly and in your inbox as we release it, Michael Calvin, who you yes, talk about a lot. Yes, and I'm a huge Why, why fan. is he so good? He is. I, I've read, uh, well, virtually all of his books. And I started with, he basically, 
His books in the past have been looking at aspects of football in particular that doesn't normally get uh, onto the back pages. And he did a great book called The Nowhere Men about scouts, about football scouts. Just amazing. Uh, He wrote a book a a year or so ago called No Hunger in Paradise, which is about um, uh, young footballers. And particularly if you've got a son or a daughter uh, who is playing football and perhaps they've they've got into a club academy or something something like that, it is absolutely... Absolutely required reading. I could I wax lyrical right. about Michael. His latest book, I've j- I just finished yesterday, State of Play, and it is superb. Michael will, will be in soon, and Melvin Burgess, who's considered like the king of, or the godfather of uh, of YA. Anyway, I that's I suspect he'll wince a bit at that because basically he just writes good books. Okay. So uh, Melvin Burgess is going to be in uh, with his new book. Uh, all of this to come. Let us know the books that you love, the books you're loving. Uh, if you've got any of the books that we've talked about, we'd love to hear from you. This is Daniel. Uh, he says, Matt and Simon, turning a swimming memoir is beautiful. It organically paddles between prose, local history and autobiography. Sounds like your kind of book, actually. Mm-hmm. Jessica J. Lee writes about growing up as a mixed-race child to immigrant parents in Canada, her experiences with swimming, and a quest while finishing her doctoral dissertation to swim all of the lakes surrounding Berlin, no matter the season. I found it difficult to express in my own words how much I love the experience of reading this book, because ultimately... Nothing that I could say would be as beautiful as what can be found inside. For a sampler, she contributed sections of the book to the BBC podcast Shortcuts. A nice side effect of having been introduced to turning by this podcast is that the voice that plays inside my head when I read it is that of the author's, which which is much nicer than mine, according to Daniel, who signs it. Thanks for the pod. And uh, Pam Jones has a recommendation. Uh, she says, uh, My Mad Dad by Robin Hollingworth. Uh, this is Robin's diary of the events leading up to and the cur that followed after her dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and her mum with di- was diagnosed with cancer. This is the author telling her story about the trials and tribulations of advanced years of your parents. It was moving, powerful, funny, honest. Uh, please give us a read. Include it in your book reviews. It's fab. It meant a lot to me as I lost my mum to Alzheimer's and dad to dementia a few years ago. A few tears were shed when I read this book. Tell your friends about Simon Mayer's books of the year. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully we can, uh, we can keep on going and uh, we can bring you some fantastic authors and some wonderful books. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you know the email by now. Books Which of is, the year yes. at yahoo.com. Com. Almost. Well done. You can done. follow us on Twitter uh, as well. Uh, Matt, we're done, I think. Uh, yes, we are. Another triumph. Are we done? Yes. We're done. <laughs> See you soon. Bye. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.